Lord, you're the creator and designer of all that exists here. And we come today to learn about your design. Lord, I ask that you give each one understanding. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many have heard about epigenetics? A couple have heard about it. Okay. Well, epigenetics is this, the study of the design of the gene. Uh, Dr. Sang Lee was giving a report at the Wisconsin camp meeting in 2000 at the time of the Human Genome Project, and he made the statement that 95% of the gene material was junk genes. Now that's an evolution concept, you know, that there's junk out there. Uh, God made no junk. But shortly after that, they came to realize that over 50% of the genetic material was switches. Switches for turning on and off different expressions of the gene. Now they thought that the, when they did the Human Genome Project that there would be about 100,000 different genes. There only turned out to be about 22,000 some odd genes. The reason there were so few is because many of the genetic expressions that we have were switches on the gene. Now if you've had high school genetics, you were taught about the phenotype and the genotype. The gene, genotype is the gene you have. The phenotype is what really shows up. For instance, different colors of eyes. Uh, Mendel the monk, who did the first that we know of in the Western world, genetic research, had peas that flowered white or pink or red. So this different genetic expression on the gene was relative to switches that were turned on and off. Now, we're going to be looking at these switches and what the finger is that turns them on and off. Yes? No, the phenotype is just a name that was coined to describe these different genetic expressions coming from one gene. So you have this one gene, and it can express itself many different ways. Yes? Okay. Repeat the question. Okay. Oh. Okay. Um, now, to start off and getting ourselves an understanding of this, on the ark, there were two dog-like creatures. Just two. Okay? Today, we have many kinds of wolves, I assume many different types of coyotes, many different types of fox worldwide. We have dingoes in Australia, we have jackals in Africa. All of these animals have the exact same genes. Once they, once they went from the human, studying every single gene in the human body, they started studying every single gene in, in all the different animals. And they found out some very interesting things. For instance, there's an extinct animal. It was a half horse, half zebra. The last one was killed off about 100 or so years ago, but it had a hide hanging in the museum, so they did a DNA test on it, and it was a zebra. So they're breeding zebra for this extinct animal, and they probably maybe have it by now. It does not take long to uh, find these genetic expressions, turn the switches back on, and, and have them again. And so all the cat-like animals on Earth, they all, too, have the same set of genes. But look how different they look, from the little kitty cat to the Siberian tiger. They look so vastly different. Those are different genetic expressions turned on. These are, this is what these epigenetic switches. Epigenetics is epi, means on top of, and genetics, gene. So on top of the gene are switches that turn on different expressions. Yes? They all have the same genes. One may be too small, the other too big. Yes, the, yes, but that's not genes. That's just the stacking up of the genes. They stack them up in different ways. That is a result of the switches that were turned on. So the same genetics, but they're 
same chromosomes are, are just clumps of genes. And how they clump up varies in the different animals. But the thing we're concerned with is the switches. Because only two cats came off the ark. How did they begin to change? They changed because God designed switches on the genes for turning on different expressions. The cat that's in a wet area, the cat that's in a desert area. Different genes are switched on so that the cat in the desert area can survive in that climate, where the cat in the wet area can survive in that climate, or can survive up very far north, like the Siberian tiger, as opposed to the jaguar in the Amazon. Different genetic switches are turned on for adaptation, this was Darwin's word, adaptation of species to the different climates they had. Darwin recognized something when he saw that. He was recognizing that there is something in these animals that allows them to switch and change their structure, their behavior, according to the environmental influences around them. Yes? Well, let's just use the biblical terms. The question was, do they change, does a cat change to a fig tree? You know, no, it doesn't change to a fig tree. A cat stays a cat. Well, we have to use biblical terms. You're using the term species. The Bible says kinds, okay? And that's a term that we should use, is kinds. Two dog kind came off the ark. Two cat kind came off the ark. I don't know where you draw the line, whether it's genes, that's a man-made term recently, not a biblical term, or was it families, where there's no longer, it's where you switch over to a different kind. Those are human terms, and you know, that the kinds fall in that category of families and, and genus, if you're familiar with taxonomic nomenclature, the naming of things, from the family to the gene to the very species. But species, that word species, they change. For instance here, um, there's an article that came out this March in the uh, Adventist world, and uh, it was entitled, When Species Change. And so there was a comment that came in the June issue of the Adventist world, and the comment went like this. Uh, Thanks for James Gibson's article, When Species Change, March 2015. How interesting and refreshing to see a church-employed scientist grapple with the scientific issues seemingly at odds with the way the church has traditionally interpreted scripture. To this non-scientist, however, the explanation of animal adaptation and change happening slowly over long periods of time is more reasonable, this is what this Adventist wrote in, is more reasonable than the idea that Satan with evil intent miraculously ordered changes in many animals' anatomy and function that would turn them into animals of prey. So we have this problem in Adventism today that many people are beginning to think things evolved or changed over long periods of time. They have changed. They have, I should say, evolved because you all know what that word means. But personally, I like to look at it this way. There was what God created in Eden, and we read in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, that When God put the animals on the ark, he destroyed all the amalgamated ones, all the junk that men came up with, and we started with a clean slate, and then from that, they began to devolve. I use the term devolve to change away, as the the earth is damaged, animals adapt. I call that devolution. I call evolution when we repair the damage and they start to evolve upward, 
because that's how evolution is supposedly used, and evolution upward, the evolve upward back to the Edenic conditions. Now, the reason I'm presenting this is because we have a responsibility to evolve things back up to the genetic conditions that were in Eden. And I called James Gibson here and talked with him about that article, and I cited to him um, three cases as well as what I mentioned to you about cats and dogs, and these are the three cases that I cited. I said, um, when cockroaches move into a lava tube that has no light, these lava tubes are very long and totally dark. Within three generations, they stop producing eyes. The genetic switches for eye production are turned off, and they stop producing eyes. How long does it take for that evolution? How long does it take for a cockroach to reproduce? Two weeks? A month? Let's say three months later, the switches are turned off and they're not producing eyes. Evolution is rapid. And so I cited another case where in Russia they were breeding foxes for fur coats. And uh, foxes can be very scrappy. And so they wanted to calm them down. So they just selected for one trait, docility. Nice and calm. Within 15 years, the fox's pointed ears flopped over like a dog. Their coat colors changed to the patterns of dogs, and their hair changed to like dogs. So within 15 years, they were changing them into dogs, just through the selection. Uh, I also mentioned that uh, when I was in uh, Hawaii, a friend stopped by. He was a pastor on his way from Australia to the mainland, and he spent the Sabbath with us, and he was, had been an entomologist before he became a pastor. And so he was out with his butterfly net, and he was catching common sulfurs and alfalfa butterflies. Now, if you know anything about collecting butterflies, that's kindergarten. So I finally said to him, what are you collecting them for? He said, they just came over 15 years ago, and the duffel bags of the fellas coming through Hawaii to Vietnam. And they've only been here for 15 years, and in 15 years they have evolved a million years. And I like to present this to the Board of Entomologists, because he used to be on the Board of Entomologists of California, just to show them things. So I told these things to James Gibson, and he said, you know, I've been collecting examples of rapid evolution for a long time, he said. I said, you know, our people need this because they're beginning to think that long periods of time are necessary for changes. And he said, I need to put this article out there sooner than later. So pray that he does, because this will stem the tide of all these Adventists thinking there's no alternative, but that it took long periods of time for these changes to occur. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't comment either way. I, don't, I haven't given it a thought. Because when I see how epigenetic works, and I'm going to tell you, you'll see why I haven't given it a thought. Okay? So, um, the question then is, if these switches exist, and the environmental influences turn them on and off, what are all the environmental influences that turn them on and off, and what effect do we have upon environmental conditions? We, we, we're familiar with the term environmental impact. Man's environmental impact on the earth has been pretty rough. Well, that alters the, what the switches on these genes are going to give us. Now, this is what I want to discuss uh, with us is, since God gave us the uh, ability to have an impact on the environment, that will change these switches, we then have the option of leading all creation back to the Edenic conditions, or if we pay no attention to what we're doing, live the lifestyles of Babylon, and through our damaging of the earth as we buy their timber, as we buy their food products, as we buy their chemicals for our household needs, um, 
we're on the road to changing them farther and farther away from Eden until, until we reach extinction. And so we want to realize, and, and to know that we have this responsibility, Genesis 1.28 tells us that we were given dominion of the earth. Dominion of the earth to have um, all things in it, all creatures in it, subject, in subjection to us. They are in subjection to our environmental impact. That alters their genetic behavior. So, this person was wondering how did this animal that was peaceful, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, all these peaceful animals, how did they get changed to parasites, predators, violently competing with one another for mates, for habitat, for food? How did these switches for thorns and thistles and um, tares or weeds get turned on. And so we see there in Genesis 1.28 that we were given dominion over all creation. I would just like to, on that theme, show you the chapter which I call the epigenetic chapter, Romans 8. Because in Romans 8 is where we hear about the predestination that has been a, uh, in question for a long period of time, for, for centuries. How are we predestined? The predestination that we have is these switches. Okay? Now, that was realized first from some longevity studies that were done in Overkalix, Sweden. And in Overkalix, Sweden, it's an isolated uh, community, uh, probably up farther north, and um, they kept records of their birth, their deaths, the disease they died of, and importantly, how the crops came that year. If the crops were poor, they didn't have too much to eat, and that's the way they had to live, because there was no way for them to communicate and get crops to substitute for what they didn't get. So if it was a lean year, it was a lean year. If it was a, a very productive year, it was very productive. So there's either a lot of grain or it was just not too much grain, but just enough to get by. What was the name of the town? Over Calix, Sweden. Is that O-V-E-R? Over E-X, I think that's how you spell Calix. Norway? Uh, Sweden. Sweden is what I, I remember. And so when they did this study, they found out that to the third and fourth generation, when it was a lean year, the people were healthy. And to the third and fourth generation, when there was a year of abundance, the people developed predisposition to heart disease, and other sicknesses. And this was genetic. This was a genetic turning on of genes according to the diet that they were eating. And it works like this. I asked, I was talking about this in, in the uh, prairie states, and uh, I said, what do you do when you have an excess of grain? And, and a, one of the farmers said, you feed it to the animals. And so they all began to eat the fatted calf. They've had this excess grain, they fed it to the animals, fattened them up, and they just ate that fatted calf through that season. Well, during that season, all the little girls that were in their mother's womb and forming their eggs, formed eggs with a predisposition to heart disease. All the little boys who were at the age of puberty and beginning to form their sperm, because of eating the fatted calf, they developed a predisposition and passed it on to three or four generations for heart disease. May have been other diseases too, but sicknesses that are a result of the overconsumption. And there was an article in Times Magazine, and they entitled the article, it was on this, and they entitled the article, The Sins of Our Fathers. Now that's the world recognizing that we know about predestined behavior. You are predestined according 
to the conditions that you lived under. In this case, it was diet, having a, a predestination effect upon them. And so in Romans 8, uh, we, we learn about this. I, I will go over Romans 8 a, a little um, later. Um, well, maybe, maybe I should go over it now. In 8.14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So it's important that we be led by God. Because he will show us. Because what does it say in Exodus uh, 20, verse 6? In 5, Exodus 20, verse 5, we, we hear about the sins of the fathers. But what do we read in verse 6? For those that love me and demonstrate it by obedience to God's commandments. In other words, eating the healthy diet, which they ate in the lean years. They ate the grain. They didn't eat the fatted calf. And so you had a health to three or four generations as a result, yeah? Yes, unless you broke that spell by obeying God's laws, to accept, but it, because in verse six it says, for them that love him and obey his commandments. In other words, start eating right. We're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start covering that too here. And so um, in Romans 8, 14, we see that we have to become, he has to become our daddy. But let me, let me continue uh, into the, what was studied. So they began to say, well, what turns? We see the diet turns on and off these switches. Pre, you know, people have a predestination for cancer. They're predestined for, for diabetes, heart disease. And so they wanted to know what can turn off the switches. So they started studying and they started finding certain foods that turn the switches off. You don't have to live with a predisposition or predestination to these diseases. You can just flick them off. So they found the sulfur groups in foods flick the switches off, like garlic and uh, the, the mustard family, things that have that sulfur in it, flick the switches off. And there's other things in diet. Uh, yes? I don't know about that. I don't know. All I know is when it first came out, it was very clear and distinct. Now the waters are being very muddied on this subject because all the pharmaceutical companies are attempting to come out with a product that they will sell you to alter the condition. So the realization that first came out was that food had the power to change these. It created it in the first place and has the power to turn it off. That's not talked of much anymore, but it came out at first. Another thing I, I would like to cover, let me cover the things that turn that switch on and off, because we, we want to know how to turn these switches on and off. And so the next thing that they, they learned was that parenting had an effect upon the switch. And they realized this, that with rats, when they were, they would have two types of mothers. One type of mother would lick the little pups. And the other type of mother, although she would feed them, she would not lick them. And the mother that fed the pups, the rats grew up and they were bold and inquisitive and, and uh, you know, would explore. But the pups that grew up unlicked, they were shy, skittish, run to the corner of the cage and hide when someone had to change it. And, I, and so I'm looking, okay. And then the, the next one um, that they came up with was contaminants. Different contaminants had the power to flick those genetic switches, the, these epigenetic switches on and off, different types of toxic material. And so I'm looking at this and I say, these are three of the eight laws of health. You know, our Father in heaven, when we come to him, although we may have had parents that do not love us, did not love us, when we come to our daddy in heaven, our Abba Father, and he starts becoming our protector, our provider, our comforter. You know what happens to those people? They may have had the characteristics of unloving parents, but they start to change. They start to change. The epigenetic flick switches start flicking on in their life, and they become a new person in Christ Jesus. You see? But this is physiological, too. These switches are actually physically switched on by knowing our daddy in heaven cares for us. And so we also have learned through, oh, well, anyway, so I looked at them and said, these are three of the eight laws of health. So I called a friend, 
Rick, who uses a computer, and I say, Rick, these are three of the eight laws of health. What, what can you find? He starts looking, called me back in two hours. He found two more. Exercise and sunlight changed epigenetic switches. An Oxford study in England showed that uh, um, a couple hundred or more switches Epigenetic switches were changed, turned on and off be, by the amount of sunlight we got. The, and the exercise, of course, we know how that rejuvenates us and can change us from a rundown condition to make us feel much better. And so about a year later, uh, another one appeared, and that was rest. Rest and relaxation switched on the epigenetic switches. So now the six of the eight laws of health that we were given have the power to flick on and off these epigenetic switches for healthfulness, all mental health, physical health, even spiritual health when we come to know our daddy in heaven and grow closer and closer to him. And so I just want to go over Romans 8 with you right now and, and just read. I'm going to start at 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, those are mice that would run in the corner, rats that would run in the corner with fear. For ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, he is our daddy. And the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. So, you know, it's considered suffering when you have to obey the commandments for health or whatever commandment for sunlight. You know, this may appear to be suffering. You have to do what you don't want to have to do. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's our change, a change in our whole behavior, becoming more and more Christ-like. But the next verse is very interesting. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. The creatures are waiting for us to have him as our daddy and let these changes occur in us because watch what happens to the creature. For the creature was made subject to vanity. Genesis 1.28. All creatures are subject to our environmental impact, our vain way of, you know, this is a farming uh, conference here, our vain way of keeping the earth. Because all of the environmental impact is all because of how we kept the soil and the plants on the earth. All of it is a result of that. And the plants in the oceans and waters. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. He put hope in those animals to be changed back again if we will allow our daddy in heaven to start leading our lives. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And in one uh, verse there, the, the, the bondage of degeneration I've, I've seen in one verse. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The very animals themselves are going to be changed back. For we know that the whole creation groans and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to know the redemption of our body. God has a plan, a plan to not just change us, but to change the very animals in creation through the changes that occur in us because we have environmental impact over our sphere of influence, our piece of land, our farm. We have that impact over it to alter the very genes of creatures. You know, Dr. Sang Lee, at the Wisconsin camp meeting in 2000, talked about one of the discoveries, and that was that we had a Sabbath-keeping gene. And he described the Sabbath-keeping gene, how um, on uh, sundown, on Saturday, it just soars up in the production of uh, some types of, uh, I don't know, chemicals of some sort that give us all kinds of 
energy to begin projects and things like that, and all types of uh, energy to think and, and figure on things, and then it immediately goes up. It's like an upside down U, and it just goes up, and then it comes across through the week, and then on Friday it just plummets and turns off for Sabbath. And we're just at rest for Sabbath. So being reasonable, he said, well, the animals must have a Sabbath-keeping gene too. So we began to look for animals that have Sabbath-keeping genes. And he was giving this uh, talk in, in Brazil, and um, an excited farmer came up and told him, I've got Sabbath-keeping bees. <laughs> now, these were honeybees. So he says, well, okay, let's go see them. So they drove about an hour out to visit, his, see his bees, and uh, he didn't see any bees. And so he says, where are they? He says, well, they're inside. <laughs> they're keeping the Sabbath. So he takes a hammer and bangs a hole in the side, and the bees come out, and they look around. Not too serious. Go back in. So he says, I'm going to come back on Sunday. He comes back on Sunday. Beehive of activity everywhere. Bees going all over the place. And so, but the thing that I find very interesting is that the honeybee, there were no native honeybees to the Americas. See, we're talking epigenetic switches now. So watch this. No native honeybees to the Americas. So the Europeans, we bring over these bees to the Americas, these honeybees. Well, they all came over with stingers, and they all came over with um, this uh, laziness. I call honeybees lazy. Because I have other bees, and they're good workers. Honeybees, if it's cloudy, oh, no, we're not going to go out. You know, that's the way honeybees are. And so they're lazy. Well, today in the Americas, we have a couple different kinds of honeybees. When he went and poked that hole into the side of that, Dr. Sang Lee jumped back, figuring the bees are going to come out mad. He said, the guy said, don't worry, they don't have stingers. So although they were brought to the Americas with a stinger, just like the cockroaches that shut off eye production, we're being so well cared for by these Seventh-day Adventists, we don't need the stinger. So they, they, they epigenetically switched it off. And this is the way the bees are going to be in heaven. They will not have the stingers. These honeybees won't have stingers. The switch is going to be switched off. Yet at the same time, some beekeepers do not care well for their bees. And I saw this, uh, and we know about the African killer bees that were spread. Well, that has nothing to do with Africa. I saw a YouTube video of some fella in Africa there. I said, look at my bees. They're not, they're not angry. <laughs> you know, he had calm bees. Why were these? So the, in a normal, uh, what, what we call the normal hive, you know, not the Sabbath-keeping hive, you have your guard bees, and they'll come out and sting you. But in the, um, the, uh, the bees that will, uh, what do you call it, the African killer bees, they will send the entire tribe out to sting you. It's not that they're more powerful with poison. They have the same as much as the other bees because they're basically the same thing, but they just, everyone's going to come get you, and they don't let go. They'll, they'll be on you a quarter mile away when you're running, still on you trying to sting you. And so that's because it's the only way they can protect themselves. They don't have these caring people to care for the hive and give them protection all the time from anything. So they have to basically make it on their own. And as they advance to the United States, they're, they're wild colonies, and that's the only way to survive, is they've got to be very vicious. That's that predation that we see, that the switches are turned on for real violence to be able to survive, because they're in a violent world. We have epigenetically switched things on for so much violence here. But as we see in the, the, with the capability of switching the switches off, they could be calm too. The fact that they are, are killer bees, and that they maintain this uh, everybody goes after them if something bothers the hive. That's because no one is caring for them. Remember, in epigenetics, it's the environmental influence that turns the switches on and off. Genetic breeding carries down lines, so obviously there was a line of bees that they bred into the normal, more calmer honeybee, a line of bees that had not been cared for but was very aggressive. And uh, they, they bred that aggressiveness in there because, like I said, the honeybee is lazy. 
You know, and they wanted a more aggressive beat that would get out there and do more work and take more of the, the brunt of a rough environment that it has to live in. And so we see here in, in Romans 8, God was talking all about this. And this is why he was making reference to predestination. If you read a few verses farther on in 29 and 30, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. God is going to glorify us with that perfect character of Jesus. Now, there's an important thing we need to consider. We have understood the importance of Bible study and prayer to develop the perfect character of Jesus within us, yet we've been here 170 years saying his coming is soon. So evidently we're missing something. The development of the character of Jesus in us entails body, mind, and spirit. Not just mind and spirit, not just the Bible study, and not just the prayer, but the very body has to have the epigenetic switches turned on for the calm behavior of Jesus. Okay? Uh, and, and just to show the significance of that, in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, it says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. We've been focusing on Bible study and prayer to develop this perfect character, and it has not developed because we obviously haven't gotten our 144,000 such that the work can be finished. We're neglecting the body and the part. And this is why the Lord has been good and recently introduced to us what the scriptures mean in Romans 8, that these are actually epigenetic switches that need to be turned on in us, and we turn them on in ourselves through obedience to the eight laws of health. Now, this is an agricultural seminar, and I have basically told you what I've told you because um, I want to give you a background. Now, how does this affect our plants? Okay, The garden itself is under the eight laws of health. So we're just going to go over the eight laws of health. I'm going to use the new START acronym, N-E-W, nutrition, exercise, water, START, S-T-A-R-T, sunshine, temperance, air, rest, and trust in God. Yes? Now, um, the eight laws of health, nutrition. Now, there's two kinds of nutrition. There is water-soluble nutrition. This is man's way. It's called fertilizing. And it can be chemical fertilizers or it can be organic fertilizers. I'm an organic farmer, and I'm not knocking chemical farming because it feeds 30% of planet Earth. So I'm not knocking that. People are being fed by it. Uh, but these guys are having a hard time. They're having a hard time, so they're looking towards the organic camp for answers. But then there's a third way to farm, and that's God's way. And I just came from a class uh, that uh, Whitmar McConnell was giving there, and he began to express and show God's way. And this is what he calls the soil food web. And in the, in the soil, we have these creatures who their activities... In relationship to the plant, all these we call microbes. Sum them all up by microbes, all this little stuff in the soil there. And on the leaf surface, these microbes are designed by God to feed the plant all the fertilizer it needs. They don't need our intervention, whether organic or chemical, to fertilize the plant. Now, the, the ground is seriously damaged, and we have to get it back into shape again, and that's going to require inputs of fertility, preferably organic fertility, in order to build it back up. But when it's operating God's way, as it did in the prairies, when it supported 120 million bison, great herds of antelope and elk, great colonies of, of prairie dogs, there was almost no water-soluble fertility in the soil. That bit of feces and urine that fell, the feces was immediately gobbled up by dung beetles. They can remove an elephant pile in two hours. 
and bury it all away into the soil as food for their young. So it does not, it is not a pollutive form of fertilization. Plants under God's design in the forests of the world and in the prairies and the scrublands and things like that are all operating by microbes feeding the plant and the plant feeding them their carbs, carbohydrates because they change, take sunlight, and make the carbohydrates that feeds the entire planet Earth, including the microbes. And then, as uh, Whitmar was saying, they um, go out into the soil and um, take the, the fungal fungi, take the minerals in, and bring it to the plant, and the bacteria take the nitrogen out of the air, and they make the nitrogen for the plant. So all the fertility is supplied by these microbes. The, the important role that the plant has is that they have to feed them their carbs. They have to give them the energy to do this. So here we have this relationship of service, the microbes serving the plants and the plants serving the microbes. And the more we study this, this service, remember Jesus said, I have come not to serve, but to, to serve and minister unto others. This demonstrates the character of our God, because our God loves to serve. He, all his creation throughout the universe, he is serving moment by moment to give it every breath that it needs, all the food for every meal that needs to be eaten on planet Earth. And, and throughout the universe, he is providing continuously. And so our God loves to serve, so he has demonstrated in creation all these acts of service. Okay, 10 more minutes. Um, so let's just go to exercise here. And uh, exercise, how many have grown plants in a greenhouse? If you try to take them and put them outside, the wind just snaps them off, right? So they don't have enough potassium in their stems, so they're not strong. So they have to be exercised by the wind. And as the wind blows upon them and exercises, and that's why we take the tray and we put it out in the breezes, gentle breezes, so that it shakes it and moves it. That exercise causes potassium to come up into the stem, strengthens the stem, and now it can resist the climate outside. So these are switches that have to be turned on. And notice how quickly the switch is turned on. You just bring them out and, and give them some exercise, and the plant immediately starts taking up potassium, and a week later, you're out planting them in the field. Okay, so these things are rapid, these changes here. So uh, water, how many have observed uh, when it rains, as opposed to irrigating? When it rains, double the size of the, of the plants. When, it, when you irrigate, only half the increase. There's something in the rainwater. God has a way of doing things that, uh, that, are, that are best his way. And so we have the sunshine. Now, sunshine is what pro provides the carbohydrates to feed everything on Earth, the energy. And uh, up where we are in, in Connecticut, you can have a sunny summer or you can have a cloudy summer. And when you have a cloudy summer, the brick levels, the sugar content of the apples are lower. But you have a sunny summer, the brick levels are much higher, much sweeter. We're, we're, we're having delicious apples this fall because it was very dry and a lot of sunshine. And so that's changed. You have, when the sun decreases in the horizon and it gets towards fall and there's less and less sunlight and the temperatures begin to drop, uh, and you get your first cool night, I have a lot of grafts, and they were new to me this year. They put fruit on the first time, and I didn't know what they were going to look like. And so I'm looking at them, everything's green. I said, man, am I going to get a bunch of greenish-type apples or whatever? And then one cool night, boom, overnight, the color popped out on it. That's pretty quick, an epigenetic switch. All you need as the sun decreases in the horizon, as it gets later in the year, it cooled down, and you get that cool night, and boom, overnight, the color comes out on the apples, and you get to see what colors they're going to develop. And, uh, and so we have um, uh, temperance, and, and that's rather obvious. We know not to be using the chemical fertilizers and things. There's a lot of detriment to our plant that reduces the quality, so we want to, have, uh, we want to use God's fertilization program for that. And then we have air. Now, orchards are planted on a hillside for good air drainage. And uh, if they don't, they're going to frost in the, in, the, in, the, in the valleys. Now, also, uh, we prune the trees for air circulation. Air is very important. We, we prune apple trees. I've pruned apple trees since I was 13. And uh, so I've done that a lot of years, and uh, 50 years, I guess, now. And um, that's important so you can have the air circulation in there so you do not get the fungal diseases developing because uh, you, wanna, you want them to dry out quickly and, and not be too wet too long 
for, to, to reduce that. Also, air circulation, I just learned recently with late blight coming in. We had this new form of late blight that came in from Mexico a few years ago, and now it's here to stay uh, uh, all over the United States, the eastern part anyways. And uh, I, I noticed that when it came and hit my tomatoes, those that were in a tight block hit them all. 95% from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning, 95% of the foliage went down. Late blight. Late blight. And so um, I noticed one row I had planted all by itself, and it only got hit about 50%, and it continued to produce. And so I realized insufficient air circulation. This blight likes it tight. And if I have proper air circulation, so now I plant my tomato rows 10 foot apart instead of five foot apart, and then I put a peppers down or a rag plant down until I have that air circulation. So air is very important. And so rest, we all know about rest. We've got to rest our land on the seventh year. And, and that's so that the uh, fungal microbes in the soil populations can build up and so they can break down the complex, uh, complex uh, carbohydrates, the lignin fibers, uh, lipids, uh, the waxy ones, break all these things down. And of course, trust in God. You know, we need to trust in his way to do things. Um, do I have uh, another five minutes? Okay. Now, seed saving is also, we need to learn about these epigenetics, which is when you're saving seed. Um, some of the seed uh, today, is, is so, a lot of it is so, has is been raised with chemicals. And when it's raised with chemicals, say chemical nitrogen or even excessive manure, because they want to push the growth, it's called forcing when you're forced with nitrogen, they want to push it. What happens is the production of food for the microbes that make nitrogen fertilizer for you free from the air, they stop producing the food for it because they don't want to feed them and have them give them even more nitrogen. So they turn it off. They epigenetically turn those switches off. So when you buy seed that's been raised not organically, you have the switches on for chemical nitrogen production, and then you grow them in your garden, and they don't do so well. Because you're not giving them chemical nitrogen. They've had their switches already turned. So what you want to do is you'll, if you want to save that seed, and that's the only source you can get is from that chemical grower, um, you just take the best ones, the ones that do, did best in your organic soil, and grow them again next year, and you take the best again. And they will turn the epigenetic switches off for chemical nitrogen uh, supply, and will turn the ones on for being, they'll start feeding the microbes and the bacterias in the soil, uh, the bacterias and the, uh, you know, they call, they call them algae, in the soil that produce nitrogen. They'll start feeding them again. These switches will be turned right back on again. And so, um, also too, where you, where you get your seed, for instance, when you buy seed now, it can come from anywhere on the planet. These, these places that sell you seed, they just buy it bulk from wherever it's grown cheapest on the planet. Well, that seed is adapted to that environment. So now you have to adapt it to your environment. And so you, again, we have to start selecting seed according to how well your best plants in your environment. And then uh, keep saving seed. And you, in those conditions, you have temperature, you have uh, what zone it is, how far north or south, uh, whether it's tropical, whether it's rainy or dry or windy or whatever your conditions are. So it's so important to save your own seed. So the switches will be turned on for your environment. And these things, like we said, evolution is rapid. It's rapid. It occurs very quickly. So. Um, you want to make the changes. And an interesting thing uh, was I was growing peach trees. Bob Jorgen suggested that I planted peaches by seed. Uh, and I knew that peaches by seed will come, 50% uh, will be commercial grade, you know, color and size. But the other 50% are still excellent to eat, even if they're a little smaller or they're not as pretty. They still can be nice peaches. So I put in a bunch of them from some of my best nursery peach trees. I bought them from a nursery, took it from the best. They, actually, they were the very oldest. My father had bought them 40 some odd years ago and they were still growing. So I put them in the ground, started a bunch of trees, put them all out. Uh, three growing seasons later, uh, this year, they set fruit. And I was very surprised. It was about 40. So these are 40 different varieties. I put out about 75, but about 40 produced. Those 40, every one of those 40 had better brown rot resistance than 
all my nursery stock trees. Well, what I found out is they, don't, they do not do selections anymore in nursery development of trees for resistance to disease. They spray irregardless. And so there's no studies done anywhere on how to find grapes or pears or apples or peaches or plums or any of these things free from disease. That's our job. We're told in Commentary 7a on Leviticus 25, we're to teach the world how to grow fruit free from disease. And so we have to start doing this. Plant your apple seed, plant your pear seed, plant your peach seed, plum seed. Plant them and put them out. Don't put them out like an orchard far apart. Put them fairly close. Because one of the first things I do when they come up in my nursery is if they have leaf problems like curly leaf, I cut them down. Just kill them if they have problems. You're only trying to select the best. So those 40 had the best disease, uh, brown rot resistance better than all the other. And two of them in particular had almost no brown rot. And I said, wow, that's a fast change from brown rot being the scourge of peaches to peaches that are producing closer to the free from disease. And so this is some of the work we need to do. We need to be working with our own seeds, saving your own seed. It becomes more adapted to your climate. The epigenetic switches get turned on. They will adjust themselves to your climate. They will adjust to all kinds of things. But you need to consider one thing, like the cattle raisers, okay, uh, like the cattle raisers, uh, they're switching over their beef and they want them to be grass-fed, but the thing is, it's going to take so long to develop grass-fed beef from grain-fed beef because it took a long time to get them there. They just slaughter them, find varieties that are grass-fed, and start there. So you want to go, just go right to the heirlooms. Start with them. There's the best chance to, to use them. So I hope you have some understanding on epigenetics now. What's that? The thornless What about it? Those are the switches turned off. Oh yeah, I have, I had six different ones. Yeah, let's let's close with prayer because we want to be on time. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful design. And Lord, please help Adventism to know and be the head and not the tail that evolution is rapid and that we can get out there and make changes, rapid changes, Lord, to show that we can have food grown free from disease. Lord, please help everyone here to, to spread the word that we can do this and we need to do this because as we learn in Ezekiel 36, that when we give our, our heart to you, uh, and you give us that new spirit, Lord, that you will change us, Lord, and that our lands will begin to produce, and then they will become like Eden, and it will draw the heathen to you, Lord. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.